0: Let me encourage you to turn to the book of Ephesians as we uh, look at chapter 2. Just verse 8, 9, and 10, Lord willing. Walking through this book verse by verse. First three chapters primarily focus on the greatness of God and our great need for Him. The last three chapters deal more with our response to the greatness of God. In verse... uh, 20 and 21 of chapter 3, kind of the theme, i repeat it weekly, about dreaming bigger. It says, now to him, talking about God, God is the great one, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask, and oh how we ought to be desperately asking far more than we do, or think according to the power at work within us. That will be very vital even in today's passage from what we're seeing in chapter 3. And to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As we look at Ephesians chapter 2, I stopped short of verse 8 last week. We just worked uh, worked our way through verse 1 through 7 to show the reality of where we are spiritually. It says that we are spiritually dead so what does that mean and how do we respond to that? What, what's the reality is? Listen, if God doesn't do something for us, we are hopeless. We have a great God who has chosen to step into a sinful world that he created and respond with love and compassion We live in interesting days, as every generation lives in interesting days for their time period. But I I considered our world and the politically correct world that we live in. There are some things that you can say, and some things you're not supposed to say. It reminds me of the story of the emperor's new clothes. How many of you remember that story? The culture expects everyone to conform to its ideals... But eventually somebody's got to speak the truth. What is real? What is happening? Stop just conforming. When you see truth but everybody speaks a lie, you don't follow the lie of the culture. You speak the truth as God has revealed it. In our day, tolerance is the highest value. Now regarding true tolerance, I believe Christians should be the most tolerant people people in the world. In this, if tolerance means you have the right to be wrong, but that's wrong. But unfortunately, tolerance has come to mean everyone is right, and you cannot disagree with that. It's not tolerance. That's a lie of the devil. With that kind of view, there's no wonder there's so many problems in our world today, because everything is equal. Except for the views of Christianity. Listen, not everything is right. Not everything is correct. There are some things that are mutually exclusive. You can't flip a coin and have both heads and tails at the same time. You can't fail your exam in your class and pass simultaneously. You can't defy gravity and build a tall building. Building. There are laws of engineering. Not everything is correct. Next time you go in for surgery, and I know of several of you who have some of these in your schedule in the near future, once you forget having a doctor that's been trained that you've been dealing with, why not just go to your local Starbucks? They're pretty chill. Ask the barista hey, I've got the surgery come up, and and I just love your demeanor far more than my doctor's. Would you be willing to do the surgery for me? If truth doesn't matter, then let the barista do whatever they desire to do. Somehow truth does matter when life and death is at stake, doesn't it? I want to give you a few examples where I think in... Our world today, and even in our, our minds sometimes, we, we get life wrong with some misconceptions. And this is where I think we need to understand the misconceptions so that we can confront it with truth. A few things, if you're t- taking notes, following along. I want you to understand the first misconception that the world typically has, that is mutually exclusive from what the Scripture says, is that we are all basically Good. We're born good. When a baby has come into the world, what parents and grandparents look at that child and say, well, look at that little sinner. Just doesn't happen. Many people believe the baby is a blank slate and we're the ones who mess them up. Which then gives that child or, or that growing young adult saying, it's not my fault I'm bad, it's your fault that you made me this way. The thought is that the environment determines the internals and the direction of that child. Now, environment does have some influence. But it's contrary to what Scripture says that we're all born sinners. We all have an innate desire for selfishness, for our own pride. Uh, The world revolves around us. And so we are not all basically good. We're all basically in need of a good God to rescue us from ourselves. To keep children from being corrupted, though, in, in this mindset, we're all basically good. We try to keep children from being corrupted because they're blank slates. They're, they're innocent of all things. Some will look to homeschooling, and I'm pro-homeschooling. Some look to private school. Some say, let's just put more money into the public school, hoping to preserve children in society so that they're not corrupted later. When we don't understand that they're actually corrupted at birth and they need truth to confront the sinful nature that they have so that they'll turn their life to Christ. If, if public school and home school and private school were, were the answer, then what in the world's going on in our world today? As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? The second misconception we have in our world today is that we all get to heaven by sincerity and morality, as long as we're fairly moral, if we're sincere. I mentioned this briefly last week. Just have you ever been to a funeral? Where people say, Well, at least they tried. Or could it be perhaps they tried the least? Does it matter how you know is it matter how we live? Absolutely, but does it determine Our eternal destination, no. We don't get to heaven by sincerity and morality. The third misconception is that we are all above average on God's grading scale. We look at our lives and go, well, at least my good outweighs my bad according to my uh, scale. And I assume God has my scale, so therefore, I'm okay Fascinating study was done. was one of the largest studies of a demographic. 800,000 people were asked a question. That's a lot of people in a study. They were asked this question. Are you above average or below average in your ability to get along with other people? That's quite a question. 800,000 people. Are you... Above average or below average in your ability to get along with other people. I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them where they are on that scale. <laughs> How many of the 800,000 people do you think answered, we are below average? 800,000 people, not one. You were exactly right. Not one said they were below average. Well, by any uh, statistical analysis, 400,000 people would be above average and 400,000 people below average, whatever that average is. But no one in 800,000 people saw themselves as below average. If we were to ask the same type of question in a spiritual context, how many of you think you're above average or below average on God's grading scale? And I bet we'd get about the same answer. We may all see some flaws, but most everyone sees themselves as above average. Let me warn you and let that be a part of your gospel presentation. No one is above average in God's perfection scale. That's why we need a good God who is merciful and gracious to rescue us from our detrimental life of way below average. Far below than what we can imagine. So let me confront these these misconceptions with three truths from Scripture. The first we we spoke about last week, but I wanted to bring it to our memory just to understand the flow of the context of chapter 2. The first is this, salvation is needed because we are all spiritually dead. Spiritually dead, no spiritual life among us, none of us have a heart for God. God has to step in. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says, "...and you were dead in your trespasses and sins." You've got to acknowledge that to understand your need for salvation and have a greater faith, a bigger faith, a faith that that trusts in God to do the work in you that you could never do for yourself. A few years ago, I was speaking to someone who shared their story. It was a group of coworkers decided to go out to a bar together. They were at a conference and they said, hey, let's all go to the local bar together after, after the conference. And, and the man who was sharing the story with me was one of the coworkers, workers and, and he was a fairly new Christian. He decided to, to not go. He just said, I, I'm not going to go tonight. And the others criticized him. Why won't you go? Do you think you're better than us now that you're a, a believer in Jesus? He answered, no, not at all. The fact is I know my weakness and I know my temptations, and I know my great sinfulness now. That's why I've begun to trust in Jesus for forgiveness and the strength I need to overcome my greatest weaknesses. He said, if I go to certain places, I know I'll give in to my own sinful desires, and I'll regret it tomorrow. See, the the reality is we all need that same forgiveness and strength. When we recognize it, when we recognize that, that in and of ourselves, we do things that, that bring us temporary pleasure, but it doesn't help us overcome the great deficit of our desire for forgiveness and love. We need Christ. We're all dead in our trespasses, and without God, we have no hope. Here's the second truth, and I'll begin to unpack these a little more here. Salvation is given because we can never earn it. It's one of the misconceptions. Oh, as long as our, our, our God's grading scale, as long as we're, we're better than average, you know, we, we, can, we can be better than other people, therefore we'll earn God's favor. I want you to look at uh, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, the, the theme text for today. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, you do not produce your own salvation. You don't pick yourself up up by your bootstraps and and, and move beyond uh, your sinfulness. At best, we only pay the interest-only payments on our sin debt. We'd never get to the principle. Suppose God were to take people to heaven on the basis of their good works. Imagine that kind of salvation that is so typically prevalent in the minds of our culture. If we go to heaven, it's because we're pretty good. Imagine God allowed you in to heaven based on good works, your good works, and not Christ. People then would boast, well, I'm here because I did this. Or some, and I've heard people in churches, well, I'm going to be in heaven because I don't do that. I'm here because of my sacrificial giving. Or or I'm here because I'm better than average. Boasting, as it says, that we do not enter heaven because of boasting. Boasting has been removed, eliminated from the equation of entering into heaven. See, boasting is an expression of pride. And pride was the original sin. Lucifer, later named Satan... Was kicked out of heaven because of his pride and boasting of how great he desired to be and wanted the position of God. And because of his pride, Satan was cast out of heaven and the cycle of sin began. Boasting in heaven about one's accomplishments would require another expulsion. For us to get into heaven and boast why we're there is because of our life, our works, our or even our decision. Anything about us in that is prideful and we would be exp- uh, expul- uh, 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 kicked out basically because of the, the same reason Satan was there and kicked out. It would open up heaven to an outbreak of sin. And every religion, if you consider the, the various religions in this world apart from Christianity, every false religion holds to the principle that salvation must be earned, merited. Or even purchased at a high price. But God offers salvation on the basis that eliminates pride. Boasting. Or merited favor. He steps in and says you were dead in your trespasses. He says for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of anything that we do so that we have no place of boasting. After hearing the gospel explained, some people think, well, you mean there's nothing I do to deserve heaven? It seems a little cheap in this exchange. In our world, especially when things are given out for free, you know, you go to a ball game. Remember, as a college student, I'd go to a ball game, they'd have a little, little thing on the side. Hey, get a free hat. Get a free, free um, uh, T-shirt or whatever. Oh, okay. Oh, well, hold on. Fill out this application for this credit card. Oh, yeah, well, free money too? Wow. Then you realize there's a cost to pay for some of these things. In our world, we give out all kinds of free things, but it has a hook in it, doesn't it? And here, Christ says, I'll give you heaven freely. Just trust me. Well, there was a coal miner approached British evangelist and preacher G. Campbell Morgan in the early 1900s. As he recounts the story, he says, uh, this coal miner uh, approached him and said, I would give anything to believe that God could forgive my sins, but I cannot believe that he will forgive me if I just ask him. It is too cheap. Morgan responded to this coal miner. He says, my dear friend, have you been working today? He says, yes, I have. I work down in the mine. He says, well, how did you get out of the pit? Did you pay to get out? He said, of course not. I just got into the cage and it pulled me to the top. Morgan paused for a moment and then said, were you not afraid to entrust your life to that cage? Was it not too cheap to get out of the pit you were in? He says, oh no, said the coal miner. It was cheap for me, but it cost the company a lot to sink into the shaft. And then suddenly the coal miner was struck with an incredible truth. Salvation is free to us. You just get in. But it costs God an enormous price to come down to the pit of our sin of where we were to rescue us. It's a beautiful picture. Being a church member, being baptized, going through confirmation, being a a generous charitable giver, even being nice, have no power for salvation Nor does taking communion, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, or or trying to follow the Sermon on the Mount. The only thing that you can do that will have any part of your salvation is to have faith in what Christ has done for you. We don't work for our salvation, but someone did. Jesus Christ alone. He took on flesh. He was ridiculed and and an outcast. He was beaten with a cat of nine tails to the inch of his life. He was nailed to a cross. He worked and he died willingly. And then God raised him from the dead three days later. And when we trust in that, when we have faith in his work, he rescues us. We need God's grace. It says that by grace you were saved. Through faith. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is receiving what is not deserved. And salvation is a gift given uh, from God freely. Now, there's much discussion in this passage uh, over the words, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. So what is this and what is it? It is the grace is a gift? Is it faith that's the gift? You know, there's arguments in all kinds of ways for these things. Here's the bigger truth than this so you don't get caught up in in the weeds. Salvation is a gift and it comes by grace through faith. That's a gift, nothing that we could have created on our own. It's not a result of our works. We have nothing to boast about, the Spirit tells us. Salvation is a gift from God made only available to us by God's grace. No obligation on God's part. And we receive by faith as God opens our eyes and heart and we say yes. Everything is a gift when it comes to our relationship with God. In Romans chapter twelve verse three, just one uh, extra verse, I want to throw in here to understand uh, this same principle. In Romans chapter twelve verse three, it says, "For by grace, or for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think." Don't get boastful. Don't get prideful. Don't don't start thinking you're you're something or someone that God was, you know. Um, eager to have because of what value you bring to the relationship. No. Grace given to me, as I say to everyone among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's ESV, NIVs, distributed, New American Standard, allotted. God even grants you a faith to see the greatness of His grace to receive the salvation that He's offering. There's no room for boasting. Salvation is a gift that removes any boasting. Some believe that salvation is God will meet you halfway if you'll meet Him the other half away. Well, that means you have equal work in that. Let me just put it in a a way that maybe you'll understand. God is not in your driveway honking the horn hoping that you'll come out on time. He gets out of the vehicle. He comes all the way to the house, knocks on the door, and he is ready as Revelation 3.20, who speaks about the church, but even to your own individual. So he's knocking. Anybody who will open the door to him will be invited to a relationship. You'll sit down and dine with him. That means it's put together. God is not out there hoping you'll come halfway. God came all the way for you. He didn't just send you a message from heaven. He took on flesh. Jesus took on flesh to come down and, and begin that relationship with you. There's no place for boasting. It's him pursuing you when you were pursuing your own sin. And the beauty of, of salvation ends in verse 10 here. And I want you to see the Salvation is effective because we are part of God's Plan, his eternal plan. I want you to see verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared when? Beforehand. Not just before this passage, but from the foundation of the world, you were on His mind and in His heart. He was preparing this whole process before you were even created. You were created in in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are always a part of God's plan. We're always, since the beginning. But see, good works are not the price of our salvation. Good works are the proof of our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. But boy, when God gets a hold of us, He will work through us. In ways that are far greater than we can imagine. This is where faith takes a hold of a God who is greater and begins to work in us. A believer is not saved as a result of their good works. But good works are the result of being saved. Good works show evidence that the Holy Spirit resides in you. John, even in, in the book of John chapter 15, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified. And that's the whole goal of our, of our lives By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples, that God is residing in you, producing in you what you could not produce on your own. Dead things don't produce anything of value. But when God resides, He makes you alive and begins to produce the fruit that only He could bear out of you. I want you to notice this word, workmanship. The word translated from Greek is poema. Do you tell it to your grandson, poema. Maybe he can look at that passage and, and look at this. We get our word, poem, from this word. Poema, poem. How is that connected to workmanship? If you've ever seen an incredible crafted work of art called a poem that has is, is lasted the generations, it takes that artist, that writer, effort, thought, crafting just the right words to get the right response from the reader. And when I see this word, and I I notice it's connected to poem, I'm thinking, you are, collectively as a church, and you are as an individual, God's masterful poem. You are a verse in the poem of what God's writing for the church. And you are not an accident. You're not a secondary thought Since the foundation of the world, God's been writing his poem, and he's written a verse that describes you and what he's doing in you. This is the beauty of salvation, friends. That God's work began before the foundation of the world. That God has been working for you, for your salvation. He's been working in you, in your salvation. And he's been working through you for the glory of God that he deserves, and the salvation of others. When God works for you, and he works in you, and he works through you, he gets all the glory. You know that you are spiritually dead, but God came and made you alive. And that my faith is not just trusting that God can save me that, that I'm trusting that God has a plan for me that God is working in me now even in my, my, my deficiencies even in my depression or, and anxiety even in the, the difficulties of my day God is still there if God's powerful enough to create the whole world and he's powerful enough to send uh, Jesus to the earth to take on flesh and powerful enough to raise him from the dead and he's powerful enough to take a spiritually dead person and make me alive he can certainly continue to work through the issues that I face on a daily basis that his work in you is created so he'd work through you that you're not just a dependent but all of a sudden now you're a disciple that's doing his marvelous work depending upon him to do it oh God has come to you friends to rescue you from your own spiritual detriment to make you alive and not just sit on the sidelines and say oh well I see what he's doing in others and I see what he's doing through others but God would never do that through me. Our faith has to be dependent upon our salvation but also our sanctification. I trust that God loves me because he said so. And I trust that God's still working through me In me to transform my mind and my heart, protect me from the lies of the evil one and the lies that this world continues to speak, and I'll trust in the truth, and I will then walk in step with his spirit to live out the work that he's working in. You have a precious relationship with God that's greater than you even know. When he was knocking on your heart's door, he was inviting you to a relationship, not for fire insurance that you would skip hell, but that you would have an intimate understanding of who he is and how desperately he loves you in spite of your sin. He doesn't accept you because you're better than average. He accepts you because you're the the worst of the worst, as Paul claimed, I'm the chief of sinners. The reason he can write this is because even as the chief of sinners, the worst of the worst, God loves me that much to to propel me to bring him glory in ways that I could never have done otherwise. I wouldn't even desire, Paul Paul would say, I don't even desire to worship him the way he desires of me. But then when he begins to work in me and open my eyes, oh, how can I not live this out? How can I not preach the gospel? How can I not uh, love my neighbor? How can I not do the things that God has done in me? Because what happens as a believer, when you totally surrender your life to him, you have a heart of stone that's been transformed into a heart of flesh and your heart beats for the things that God's heart beats for. Your eyes are being uh, removed and you have fresh eyes to see as God sees. You see the heart and the hurt of others and you bring the hope that brings them to a relationship with God that loves them. When we see the lies of the world, I want you to see past the lies into the hearts of the individuals that are lost and hopeless. And rather than being in a position of judgment and just saying, well, they're all going to hell because of their sin, why not say, God wants to rescue them out of their hopelessness, bring them truth, and love them? You have no place to boast as a believer. Neither do they have a place to boast because of their sin. So therefore, let God do a work in you. That this community would hear the gospel in a clear presentation. That it's an open invitation of love, of forgiveness, and transformation. The beauty of salvation, God, is that you worked for us, you worked in us, and you're working through us. And even Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 reminds us that you began a good work in us and you will guaranteed bring it to completion. Reminds me of a 1920 lyric. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free.